I don't know what your relationship to New Year's resolutions is. You might be the person who crushes them. That's great. I am not. I know that most of us are not. Um, two weeks. You've got about two weeks of holding to those resolutions. 2018, a global survey, 31.5 million people responded. And the average time that we hold to our resolutions is two weeks. January 14th, that's what you've got. That is the extent of our determination to be a new person. Two weeks. But we can't give it up. We still feel this pull, this longing to be a new us in the new year. Even if you choose not to set resolutions, you feel that pull this morning. I know that to be true. It's deep inside each of us, this desire to be different. It's also what the Bible teaches us. It teaches us that there is an original design for us, and that design echoes within. And so right now, this morning, there is a tormented unrest inside each of us that bears witness that we are not as we ought to be. Calls for self-acceptance by a therapeutic culture ring hollow after a time, and we know that. Endless books on self-help and podcasts you could listen to about becoming a new you this year. But the Bible is the only book that audaciously claims that if you are in Jesus, you are already a new you. Tells us that every single day for the Christian is like New Year's Day. Your past has been paid for by the blood of Christ. Who you are as a child of the King, a citizen of heaven, as we will see in our passage in a moment. And we are invited this morning to resolutely set our faces, our hearts, on becoming the already new you. I think your passage is in the bulletin. If not, maybe it's on the screen. Uh, Philippians chapter 3, 17 through 4, verse 1. Let me read it. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved." the word of the Lord. Let me pray. Father, uh, we trust that you will speak to us this morning by your word. God, I ask that you would draw a straight line with a crooked stick like myself. Father, comfort those of us who are in need of comfort and convict those of us who have grown too comfortable. Cause us to love you, Jesus. Cause us to love your ways. We ask this in the name of your son. Amen. Um, earlier this year, I read a book about a guy named Ernest Shackleton. In 1915, he took 28 men uh, to Antarctica. He wanted to be the first person to cross the continent. continent. Um, and so they went up there. And they're in the ocean outside Antarctica, and the ice freezes up, and the boat that they're in, it gets trapped, and uh, they're stuck there for a really long time. And eventually the ice, it keeps putting pressure on the boat and the boat cracks up. And so they escape from the boat, they take a bunch of supplies and they end up camping on the ice, this giant ice pack, living for the next year and a half. 
in Antarctica. Freezing cold temperatures, negative 40 degrees at times. Uh, much of the year was completely dark because, you know, astronomy and the sun and stuff. Uh, there's no North Face, no Patagonia puffy jackets that you all wore in here this morning. Just freezing cold temperatures, darkness, and a lot of penguin meat. Um, it's brutal. And the book, it goes through these men's journals looking to solve how did these men do it? How did they survive such brutal conditions? And what you see is that every night the men would sit around and they would tell stories from home. They'd talk about the foods that they missed. They talked about the smells that they missed, the people that they missed. They were incredibly homesick. And this nightly ritual seems a bit strange, doesn't it? If you're that homesick and there's no chance of your getting home anytime soon, why would you keep talking about the things that you missed, that you will absolutely not have? But as you read these journal entries, what you see is that their homesickness and this nightly ritual of indulging that homesickness is exactly what keeps them alive. It's the exact thing that propels them and gives them energy to fight through the cold and the exhaustion and the starvation and get home 18 months later. The message of the book is clear. Homesickness might be the very thing that keeps you alive. And that's how Paul concludes chapter 3 of Philippians. Verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our citizenship, who you most fundamentally are, is in heaven, is in Jesus. That's your home. And it's through indulging your homesickness, your longing to be with Jesus, to be like Jesus, to see Jesus, to hear his voice, to see his face, his smile, and see a world that's finally made right by our king. It's through indulging our longing for that that we might be able to find joy and flourish in the midst of the tension. The tension that we live in a world that's not yet our home and is a world that's pretty dark. The tension that we live in bodies and selves that are not yet fully who we already are in Jesus. And so Paul gives us three principles to help us indulge that homesickness and find joy in this life. Here's the first principle, verse 17. Join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. First principle, imitation is key. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I came home to my five-year-old and two-year-old sons running around our house with foam swords, screaming running from their room, screaming, hitting things with their swords, causing havoc around our house, then running back to their room, slamming the door, and then you'd hear Bear, the older one, yell, our property, and then you'd hear Sam, the younger one, yell, er, bovary, and you don't know what that means, but he's trying to say, our property. You see, Sam, he imitates literally everything his older brother does, and it's cute, and it's funny, and you would think he would grow out of it, but he's not going to. What he imitates is only going to shift. Imitation might be the sincerest form of flattery, but it's also the most effective way to grow and to change. A human being is the most imitative creature in the world, said Aristotle, and brain scientists have only confirmed that fact in recent years. If you want to learn, if you want to grow, if you want to change and develop, then imitate someone in what they do. 
You are doing it all day, every day, whether you realize it or not. Constantly just taking in information from the people and inputs around you, consciously, subconsciously, analyzing and assessing that information, and then imitating what seems desirable. This is how you grew up. Years of patterns of behavior, thinking, placed in front of you that you imitated or sought to avoid. And you are currently imitating people or ideas of people in the world around you. That's not fake. It's not being inauthentic. To imitate is to be human. And Paul knows this to be true. And so he says, imitate me and imitate those who follow the pattern that you see in us. Imitate me. That might rub you wrong. That's, that's a pretty audacious thing for someone to claim. I want you to imitate me. Now, what's he, what's, he, what's he calling us to imitate in him? He's not telling you to imitate his dress, his speech, his mannerisms, his extroversion or introversion. He's earlier said to the Philippians that he is anything but perfect, so he's not telling them to emulate and imitate everything in his life. What is it that we're supposed to imitate, Paul? And what you see is that he is calling us to one thing to imitate. It runs all through the book of Philippians. A singular devotion to Jesus. Verse 8 of the same chapter, he says this, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Verse 13, a few verses before ours, One thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal of the upward call in Christ Jesus. And so what you see for Paul in this book is that again and again, for him, Jesus is his base camp, his safety, his security in life. Jesus is his glasses, how he sees and interprets everything in his life. His failures, his successes, his joys, his disappointments, all of it, he sees as things to help him know and be like Jesus. And Jesus is his goal, his destination. Jesus is who he is after in every corner of his life. Paul's not saying that he does not love other things or think about other things. He's just saying that everything in his life is connected to Jesus. A guy named Dietrich Bonhoeffer says it this way. God wants us to love him eternally with our whole hearts, not in such a way to injure or weaken our earthly loves, but to provide an underlying melody to which the other melodies of life provide the counterpoint. In other words, love for Jesus is the foundation for all the other loves. Every gift that you have, wealth, health, children, career, taxes, gadgets, holidays, you name it, should be used as kindling for a roaring fire of love for God. That's what you see in Paul. And he's saying, imitate me in this. And when you see this in other people, imitate them. Why? Because you are imitating someone. And as you imitate them, you're imitating their loves. You're being shaped by their loves. Imitation is such a key to the Christian life. It's not just you and Jesus off doing your thing. So much of your growth stems from what you see in someone who's just ahead of you. We can't see Jesus in the flesh yet. I can't wait to see him. But y'all, guess what? I see little pieces of Jesus in all, well, I don't know you guys that much. I know some of you, 
but I see pieces of Jesus through you. And my goodness, do we see him clearly? You can almost smell him, can't you, when you find someone like Paul here, someone who has this weird combination of confidence and humility, someone who takes a genuine interest in you, wants to love you, not to get something from you, not even just because it's the right thing, but they love you because it's a way for them to love Jesus. Jesus shines through that, right? Do you have this in your life? Are you able to look out and see people where you can imitate this? If you do, grab onto those people, find out what has shaped them, and imitate them. And are you becoming the kind of person that you would be able to humbly call other people to imitate this in you as well? It's the model for Christian growth. It's like a big train where Jesus is the engine. He's up ahead on the tracks. He's the one who's pulling all of the weight, doing all of the work. We just get attached to him. But you get attached to him by becoming attached to other people, by imitating them. These people, train car things. Yeah, it works. Go with the illustration. (laughs) So necessary to have someone to imitate, especially when you are living in a world that is not yet your home. Y'all, we live in Knoxville. Orange is everywhere. We are Kentucky fans. I went to UK. Jess went to UK. Our kids will be Kentucky fans. People ask our kids, hey, who are you cheering? Are you going for Smokey or the cats today? And our kids get very confused because Smokey's everywhere. And Smokey's cute. Hot take. So we teach them. We teach them by giving them things to imitate. We wear blue on catter days. We watch TV and scream at 18-year-old boys playing basketball. We say go cats as a way of saying goodbye to our UT friends. We're giving our kids something to imitate so that they will know who they are in a world, Knoxville, that is not their home. Imitation is key. Second, worldliness kills. Verse 18, for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with mindset on earthly things. Worldliness will kill you. That's Paul's reminder here. Paul's not talking about people out there in the world. He's not talking about non-Christians. He's talking about people who claim to know and follow Jesus, and he's weeping over them. Weeping over people who claim to know and follow Jesus, but are destroying themselves on a pathway of destruction. He's talking about people who sit in church pews every Sunday. Why? Their God is their belly. Fun word, belly. He's setting this up in direct contrast to the example of Paul's life and loves. You see, the stomach, the belly, was the seat of desires in this culture. The stomach was viewed as the thing that all of your wants and your passions and your desires come from. And for that to be your God means that the the desires of your flesh, your wants, your needs, your comfort, your status, your reputation, those things drive you. Those things own you. Let's just take the surface example of what he's giving here, the stomach. Stomach's a good thing, right? Stomach is a good thing. You would die without your stomach, without hunger pains telling you, hey, bro, I need some calories, right? You would die. But a stomach is a terrible God. 
It's a terrible thing when it runs your life. On the one hand, you have gluttony. Whenever you have the urge to eat, just throw stuff in there. Eating just to quiet the longing for food or most likely eating just to quiet other longings. I mean, we literally call it comfort food. And in the long run, this thing will kill you. On the other hand, you could be governed, run by your stomach when you have to so intently control whatever goes into your stomach so that you can try and have this perfect body, perfect discipline, makes you feel good when you're doing it, crushes you when you're not. Your stomach is a terrible God, and it will destroy you. Their minds set on earthly things. He's talking about people who just get so caught up in the love of things in this world that they love those things as their gods. It's when your appetites for things in this world control you. Anything in creation that becomes the thing that you need for comfort, when you're anxious, when you're sad, when you're just bored, and you run to that thing to medicate. That's what he's talking about here. And it could be literally anything. Food, golf, money, career, having friends, success, social media, thinking incessantly about your children and how they're going to turn out. It could be vices, pornography, alcohol, drugs. It could be emotions. Fear, the need for attention. When these things take the driver's seat, these internal passions, when they take the driver's seat of your life, when things in this world become what you need to be okay, you are forgetting who you are and where you are headed. And it's deadening your longings for a new world. And it ends up making you an enemy of the cross, as Paul says. Because it starts making the cross an enemy for you. You start, when you have these things, you start stiff-arming God, just like giving God the Heisman so that you can be with your precious, so that you can have that thing. Like God calls us to pick up our cross and follow him, which means anything in our life that he tells us to lay down and follow him, to go to him for that comfort, for that approval, or whatever. And if he tells you to lay it down, but we love that thing too much, we say, God, I'm, I'm going to have my precious right now. I'll get with you later. I'll get serious about God later. And this ends in destruction. Because y'all know addiction cycles, right? It ends up just requiring more and more until it destroys you. Destroys your relationships with other people. It destroys your relationship with the thing that at first was a good thing but has now become a horrible God. And it destroys your intimacy with your God. Worldliness will kill you. But I love what Paul does here. Because he's not just like, hey, worldliness will kill you, so stay away from the things of the world. Instead, he gives an antidote to worldliness that actually allows you to love the good things of this life in their proper place. And it's our last point. You're not home. Here's the antidote. Here's how Paul pushes back on inordinate desires for the things in this world. Verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven. He is reminding them that they are not home yet. And he's telling them to indulge a healthy homesickness. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. Y'all, Paul is talking about something huge here. 
This is no Hallmark heaven, floating around up in the clouds, playing little harps and naked babies, and that, sort of, that sounds terrible. This is not what he's talking about. He's talking about the day that Jesus returns and unleashes his power, subjecting everything that rails against him and his perfect and beautiful authority. He's talking about the new heavens and the new earth. The picture you get in Revelation is of Jesus coming back, and he's not taking everybody away up to heaven, but he's descending down to earth, bringing the new Jerusalem, bringing the presence of God, the full presence of God, back to earth so that you would live with him and enjoy him and his creation perfectly forever. And in a real way, your citizenship, who you most truly are, is someone who even now belongs to that. A new, perfected you. All these self-help books and podcasts about New Year's resolutions floating around, it's all promising to make you into a new you. But what Paul is saying here is that there already is a new you. That's confusing. Who you most fundamentally are, Christian, your truest identity, your fullest identity is the new you, is the you that is in Jesus, the person who's been cleansed by his blood. Your sin, your failure, your shame, all of these things, even that you walk into this room with right now, they've already been paid for completely. They are removed. They are done. They are gone. The person who has all of his perfections, Think about the bravery of Jesus, the kindness of Jesus, the goodness of Jesus. You wear that now. It's all attributed to you, his righteousness. You are a citizen of heaven. That is who you most fundamentally are. Yes, of course, there's a gap. That's the gap that we walk into this room feeling with. He hasn't returned yet. We're still living in bodies and selves that are shedding the old you. But you really are right now connected to Jesus by faith. You are in him. He is in you. You are a citizen of heaven. And that's why the sins, the bad habits, the longing to be a new person is so real. That's why the promise of the new year feels so compelling. Y'all, I want to be a new me. We want to be who we already are in Jesus. And if you feel that pull, that longing, that's God's spirit inside you right now. That's Jesus himself in you, calling you to be who you already are. Y'all, you're like Chip and Joanna Gaines' houses. You've been purchased by Jesus. He owns you. And he has moved into you by his spirit, and he is restoring you back to the glory that you were created for. It's painful at times, living with that tension. As he's ripping out old shag carpets and pink bathroom tile, tearing out these old fixtures of idolatry and sin and putting in new fixtures of selflessness and enjoyment and worship of your God. Or think about it this way. It's like my son Bear who likes wearing my T-shirts. Bear looks like he's 14, even though he's five, but my T-shirts are still really big on him. He puts it on and it drags on the ground around him, runs down past his hands. When he's wearing that shirt, he is clothed with my T-shirt, right? It doesn't fit him right yet. He's spending his days growing up into what's already his. You right now really do wear the perfection, the righteousness of Jesus. And you are spending the rest of your life growing up into what you are already clothed in. 
He's making you into who you already are, a citizen of heaven. And it doesn't stop with you. It's begun in us now, but it will extend to every inch of creation when he returns. No more pain, no more sin, no more fear, no more war, no more hatred, but a world of people enjoying their God, enjoying themselves and enjoying one another. That sounds marvelous. The promise of a new year and a new you is so easy to be cynical about. But if you are in Christ, every moment of every day holds the promise of the new year. Who you most truly and fundamentally are is the new you, the in Jesus you. Why not spend this year giving yourself over to living into the new you? And maybe Paul's invitation here is to feast your imagination on what that will one day be like. To not get so burdened down by the gap of I'm not who I ought to be in Jesus, but to feast your imagination on one day who he will make you into. To feast your imagination on what this world will be like when he returns. And maybe as you feast your imagination on that, it'll start to close the gap. Maybe that's how it works. We do this by learning. We learn it by imitating those in whom you see this singular, consuming devotion, love for Jesus, because that's what you're headed towards. We get this by running from worldliness and by feasting your heart and your imagination on who he is making you into, who you already are in him, and what this world will be when our king returns. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and your promises that even as we approach a new year with regrets and frustrations, we approach a new year with fear and cynicism that anything would be different, Jesus, you promise that you have already achieved the change in us. Encourage us, comfort us, give us the imagination for what that will one day be like. Lord, when we are freed from these sins and these habits and these fears, make us to love you more. Amen.